to Flora and Friends, your botanical cup of tea, a podcast for plant lovers of any kind. We welcome guests to our botanical tea break to explore the history, science and meaning of plants for our lives. My name is Judith Lundbeil-Felten. I'm a plant scientist, university researcher and founder of Flora L Design and I'm the hostess of your botanical cup of tea. Welcome to the mini-series of the Flora and Friends podcast on pelargoniums. I'm dedicating today's episode to diverse aspects of industrial pelargonium breeding. My interview guest today is Leonard Jonsen from Syngenta Flowers. And Leonard has worked for more than 40 years with uh, ornamental plants and their production, partially in an own company and then in different larger companies. And Pelagonium has always been a part of the, the work that he has had. And today he is technical lead at Syngenta Flowers, taking care of plant testing and production following Syngenta's breeding program of ornamental plants. And Syngenta's flowers provides about uh, 20% of the European pelargonium market with plants and 30% of the Swedish pelargonium market. Um, I interviewed Leonard while he was on a travel to Portugal to one of Syngenta's pelargonium facilities. And I think this interview gives lots of insights into the perspective of the ornamental plant industry And I hope it will broaden your view on pelargoniums even more. Um, I would also like to apologize for the slightly suboptimal sound of this interview, but I hope that you will anyways enjoy listening to it. Welcome, Leonard. Thank you very much. And I'm happy to, to be with you also to, to share my knowledge with pelargoniums. Yes, and that brings us actually already to the first uh, question. You're working at Syngenta with pelargoniums, but how have pelargoniums found their way into Syngenta? And since when have you been working with pelargoniums in the company? Ooh, I mean, really found a way into Syngenta. I mean, I think, let me see, they started sometime around yet so about for 20 years ago. But really serious within Syngenta, I would say it's together with the acquisition of a German company called Fischer Pelagonium that was very specialized or on Pelagoniums. And that's where actually the big step for Syngenta into the Pelagonium market came. Mm -hmm. And that is for 13, 13 years ago. And um, the production of your plants is going on in which countries? Our production is mainly focused on three countries. And that is Kenya, Ethiopia for the European market and in Mexico. And how can we imagine the production there? Is, is this done in, in greenhouses? Is it done outside? You have to do it in greenhouses with control climate and also to make sure that you have it insect free. Mm -hmm. So there is, I would say for pelagonius, there is two bacteria that are very dangerous for pelagonius. One of them, the Santomonas, is dangerous for pelagonius and 
can kill them 100% if you don't, don't watch out for that. But there is another bacteria that is also uh, what we call a quarantine disease. Bacteria doesn't only affect the pelagonians, but also affects So everything has to be under high hygienic conditions that you have full control on and uh, disinfections and all these kinds to make sure and we have also for export to certain countries is controlled on a yearly basis to make sure that you have the the right controls for it when you um when you say now there's a there's a serious um issue with these um two types of bacteria what is the breeding of your plants actually aiming for is this to to find higher resistance of pelagoniums to the bacteria Or is it more for like ornamental properties or other kind of traits that you are breeding for? Resistance, yes, it's one of them. But I still say resistance for bacteria is a little bit more difficult to, to breed in. But it's it's one of the things. And then you, you can say there are other things. There is, there is resistance for pests. It's, it's more difficult target. But the main target is actually to say, okay, Uh, consumer value and reduction of resources for, for to produce the, the the plant. What I think is is nice to see is that we have a switch from being what we call grower focused, which is then our customer, that's the growers that buys our our cuttings, to be consumer focused because in the end. They also buy our cuttings, but not directly from us. But in the end, we have to make sure that they like what we are doing and that they get some positive things out of the of the plants that we are producing. So I think from breeding point of view, there is a clear change of the target group, that's for sure. Is the uh, the production efficiency when you talk about that? Is that related to how well you can take cuttings from the plants, or what kind of other traits are, are dominating the production efficiency? Yeah, it's it's like you say, it's it's about how many cuttings the the mother stock produces per week. So I mean, normally we can say a a, a big plant that is six, seven, eight months old. Is, about two cuttings per week. Of course, if you can in, in, increase that to 2.5, of course, that's that's a 25% increase. Huh? But I think the, in, the, in the breeding, the main target has been to say, okay, at, the, at our growers in Europe, or that is growing in countries where you are heating and the, and the space is more expensive, it's about how many plants can they produce on the square meter. And in terms of consumer value, what's the consumer looking for? A lot of flowers, uh, colors, and also that the plants continue to grow when they put them in the garden. So when you when you start this breeding process, now you have different you have these different criteria that you want to breed for. How do you choose the parental plants? And are these uh, like are these Pelagonium species or? Uh, have they already been improved in a way? And how how do you go about when you when you start this project process in the selection of the plants that you start with? But also how do you screen them once you get something out of this? Do you have any kind of molecular method that you're using there today? 
less than 10 years ago, we, Syngenta, actually feature introduced what we call interspecific pelagoniums. So that means that it, there is crossings of several species. And these interspecific, they are crossings of three different pelagonium species. And that is then wild species that is then bred into, into this. And with, with the target to have heat resistant, dross resistant, and also a plant that is giving high consumer value, meaning a lot of flowers and bright colors. And this breeding was done. Syngenta, we have two breeding locations. We have one in, in the Netherlands and we have one in California. So this breeding of this interspecific was done in the Californian breeding location with the three wild species into, into to one, so to say. How do you do that with three? Do you cross first two of them and then you cross the third one into yes. this one? Yeah, yeah. And does it matter yeah, in, which, yeah. in which order you do it? I think it might matter in which order you do it. But on the other hand, I would say when, because this, I say you have a lot of experimental breeding also. I mean, you have, we have to, you have talked to breeding where we say, we, or we talk with the breeder. We have, for instance, today a variety in the assortment that is not performing very well. It is growing in this way, have red color, but we need a replacement. So, I mean, that is targeted breeding. Then the breeder knows more or less what he needs to cross to be able to, to go in that direction. Mm. But then they have also 25% of the time they use for experimental breeding. And I think like this in the specific, it's something coming out from the experimental breeding where you say you do something and you don't really know what you're going to get out, but you see what's coming. Mm. And for this, uh, for this kind of experimental breeding, you are always using um, annual herbaceous pelagoniums or are there different other, like uh, they have different growth forms, the pelagoniums. Are you uh, using different of them or is it all, always annual and herbaceous ones? No, it's, I mean, the... The basis for breeding, we have what we call the Pelagonium Museum. So you see where it has been collected, the species of the wild species of Pelagoniums. Mm -hmm. And where we have, I think, close to all the, all the different species of Pelagoniums that are around in, on, on the globe. And this is very much used for, for that type of breeding. Mm -hmm. So you have a, a collection of all these original species growing somewhere? Yeah. Yes, you have that in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. That is a that is an interesting an interesting resource, I think, to to to, to conserve because you are also conserving these plants and their basically their genes. Uh, by having this collection, whereas if, if there's any yeah. kind of changes in uh, with climate and or anthropogenic activities in the places where these came from, um, originally you still have a, a backup of them. Yep, they are, are, you... they are safe for the future. Yeah, uh, and it's and it's and it's also because I mean that's that's how you can create some new funny things, so to say, by doing this with cross using the species the, the name from the original ones to mm -hmm. cross them into you you can get some good good things out of that 
of course, in the breeding, you, you do it through seeds. And when you, you get a lot of different types, of course, the selection is, is the difficult part, actually, how to select the, the candidates that go forward. We have a system from the first, so to say, outcome of a crossing. They have five steps where they do selection to say, okay, when they pass to the fifth step, they feel comfortable that this is something that can be worth to look into the, to the market. When they're on in this, the last step within breeding, it's handed over to supply chain. So and that's actually where I have the most details because that's where, where I come in in my area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get them, let's say, 100 candidates from breeding that they have went through the breeding process and, and the different stage gates. We put this one in, into our first commercial production trials, which then is meaning small, small volume at our motherstock locations in Africa or Mexico, and where we then produce the unrooted cuttings, and this was then sent to our routing locations where they route the cuttings then to be delivered to customers, which then is in, in the Netherlands or in in, in US. Mm-hmm. And then these varieties, the hundred, they go through this process and they are also tested at we have in Europe, we have six test locations where we test all the varieties to say for the grower testing and in the end also consumer testing. And normally out of those hundred coming out from, from breeding, I'll say maybe 25 goes further to say that we say they pass the first commercial production test and the commercial consumer testing. Mm-hmm. How long time does that take? That takes at least from the first step to the last. It takes at least at least three years. Okay. Yeah. And so... you can say from from the from the breeding having the first outcome until we say we can sell it commercially. Six, seven years. How do you um, assess whether this is going to be a popular pelagonium with uh, the consumers? Are there trends or other factors how you can predict what is going to be selling well? I mean, you have trends, but then you, we also do close cooperation with retailers to have the input from what they think the consumers want, even though they, I mean, they are one step closer to the consumer than we are. And then we have also some consumer panels where we do then measurements on, on, on these, these things. And this is not only Pelagonis because that we, we are breeding in many other things also. And you have one, one Pelagonia, for instance, that you have that is also popular in Sweden is the Shellex Pelagonum which is a Syngenta interspecific. So that was one of the first ones we came with that has then three species bred into it. Mm-hmm. I've also been reading that sometimes once you, when you, when you cross the plants, then you, you take cuttings and then you need to take cuttings for several rounds, I guess, to see that it's stable what you have 
made. But sometimes yeah. during the process of making cuttings, they can occur spontaneous mutations. You have, let's say, B-color varieties. It's, you always have to do a selection. So, I mean, we are, every year, we are exchanging the mother stock in, in our production locations. So, I mean, so, and we have then what we call the elite material to supply to our production locations is in a site or a company that we have here in Portugal that we have the elite material. But, and that is a small number of plants. And these ones, they are selected every year to tr what we call true to type. Because you have, you have even though pelagoniums goes pretty slower, but you have always a genetical drift. So if you do this true to type selection, you will say in a certain time period, the variety will change and look different. So and, and especially, like I said, with decolored varieties, there is, it's much important because they drift much quicker. And as you said, sometimes you have a spontaneous uh, mutation where you can say, but normally when that happens, you can recognize it back to some of the one of the parents. So it's not so easy to actually keep this when once you have a very popular, um, let's say, popular hybrid. It's not easy to keep that stable over years. No, I mean, you, you still need to, to maintain the, the genetics. Mm. Even though I say pelagonius is, is very stable, but still you have a drift. We have other things that goes much quicker. That's really interesting in a way also that uh, we have very pel popular pelagoniums here in, in Sweden. And uh, it's the question if they are really still the same than uh, more than 100 years ago when people first started to culture them, the Moabaca pelagonium, for example. Yeah, that, for that as people take, yeah. uh, take cuttings and multiply them, oh. they probably end up being something different today than what they were back in the days. How about the resistance of the pelagonium and your breeding programs, um, the resistance to this bacteria? Has anything been, uh, have you made any major advancements in that sense with the breeding program? Uh, so the resistance for the bacteria is difficult because it's connected a bit to the color of the, of the plant also. But what, what we are spending, Resistance more is actually to what we call the post-harvest tolerance. Uh, pelagoniums, when they are under stress, so that means when they leave the greenhouse and they go into a truck and be transported and go to the store, they start to produce uh, gas ethylene, mm. which we have been then identifying the genes that are, and we also know which parents we can use that has the best resistance against that. I mean, unfortunately, we are not as far with the bacteria because still I say if, if we could solve the bacteria problem, then we would not need to, to change mother stock every year because now we change the mother stock every year, which is uh, very costly and also reducing the, the production they can give. So the, 
the order they get, I mean, to a certain extent, the more they can produce, which could be interesting, but we cannot do that because of we need to keep them clean from these bacteria. So that, that we, that's why we change every year. So there we didn't succeed too much, but as I said, with other things like this ethylene tolerance, we have been succeeding better. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Plant hormones are always uh, a very interesting yes. part of these responses. Yeah. I have been working on ethylene myself, so <laughs> I know a little bit the uh, story. Okay, yeah, yeah, that. That. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then you know when we are working hard, because in the end, you can say the ethylene does actually, we, we calculate that about 15% of all pelagonians that goes into retail, they are wasted because they are not keeping the quality during the time. And often it is because of this ethylene. Mm. And I say if we, if we could solve that problem, that would save a lot of resources, I mean, to, and save a lot of money for the retail. So that's, that's why this has a, has a focus, actually, and also for the resource use. Because mm. why should we produce waste? I mean, that makes no sense. No. How how far has work on pelargoniums uh, gone in terms of like genetically modified plants? Where you, I mean, the breeding is one process, but you need to have like strong parents, for example, yeah. that have a good trait so that you can introduce that into subsequent generations. But if you do genetic modification, you could be targeting a very specific set of genes yeah. in the plant. Is it possible to make uh, genetically modified pelargoniums? Say so we know we have we know the technique and we know which genes we could use, but on, on the other hand, it's not allowed to market gene modified ornamental plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there we are. So that's that's what that's that's what that's why the breeding is traditional breeding, and mm. I think I think maybe that is also the safest. I don't know mm. what this, but this is what you say. If you could do gene modification, I mean, then you know you can target and you can exactly switch what you want. But uh, we, we are, the, the breeding is fully on the natural way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, the, the regulations are often yeah. the most like the most decisive uh, point in yeah. that, whereas you could in a way, it's it has always two sides. If you say 15% of the, the pelargoniums, yes. they go to waste. Um, and if that could be solved by um, genetically modified plant, that would also save resources. There is always two sides of the coin. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's for sure. And Can what you... is right and wrong? That's yeah, difficult to know. That's, it's exactly, it's difficult to yeah. say. Even the breeding has also the downside that we don't always look at all the different traits that have been changed. So there's yeah. there's much more regulations for the GM plants as for bread plants, for example. So even there, there's two sides of the of the coin. But I was wondering if it, when it yeah. comes to um, to the the infection, um, have you been trying, for example, to keep these plants in uh, sterile culture systems where they would not be um, not be sensitive to this bacteria, or are these bacteria living inside the plant tissues already and they get active under these stress conditions? I mean, 
Yes, the bacteria can be latent in, in the plant. And when you get certain conditions, it, it dominates the plants. But I say what we, for our production, we have different steps. So I said that the first step is actually, it's, it's what we say, we start with a medicine in vitro color, mm -hmm. which is then 100% tested. These plants are then grown in a very, I mean, it's not sterile because it's still, it's, it's a greenhouse and they, but it's, it's very strict conditions and, and, and everything. And that is a special greenhouse and it's on, on a location that we have in Portugal. So here we, we then do all what we call the super elite. So these ones then are supplying all the starting material to watch our production farms. Mm -hmm. And I mean, here strict hygiene conditions and the plants are standing with wide distance, not touching each other. Uh, you have no water splashing and all these kind of things just to, to keep, and you have double entrances, everyone has clothes and disinfection between the plants and all these steps that you can take to secure yourself. But then it goes then to the production farms where you have, where you cannot work in that way because I mean it would be way too costly. So of course there you have less phytosanitary regulations and levels, but it, because you have also to look a bit to the efficiency. But still, I would say looking to a normal greenhouse production, there are still high hygienic conditions because you have double entries, the disinfection entering, special protection clothes, disinfection units and all these kind of things to, to keep the contaminations away. And I mean, the Santa Monas, which then is the specific for pelagoniums, doesn't have very many host plants. So I mean, there you can say if you keep strict conditions, you have uh, on the material you're getting in and on, on the production, you are pretty safe. But then you have the other one, Ralstonia, which has other host plants, which then is, it's more tricky and it can also be spread through the water, irrigation water. So for instance, our irrigation water in Africa is disinfected two times by UV and also by, uh, by ozone. So I mean, we are disinfecting it two times to be sure that we don't get it through the irrigation water. Mm. Is there is there any kind of research done on like biocontrol, for example? Are there other species that are um, repelling these bacteria, or any kind of other yeah organisms that would help the plant to be stronger to resist them? Uh, yes, and there have been. So I say chemicals that was allowed for quite some years ago that you could use when you if if you got an infection just to cure it and to suppress the, the infection. But I mean this as we are going to a more sustainable globe, I mean the use of chemicals and other artificial things to keep them from getting a and less and we need to more rely on on other means to do it mm. there's no like um 
beneficial microorganisms interacting with the pelargoniums that could be used to make the plant stronger? Not, not known. Hmm. Not known. And is, uh, do you know these, these bacteria, are they also infecting the plants so often when the plants are in their natural context? No, I think you see it more when you do it in a crowded text, so to say, a commercial production where you have many individuals collected together, maybe a little bit like people. On mm. the countryside, they are less sick than they are in the town, yeah. in the city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's indeed. I was wondering because sometimes uh, looking into like the the all, plants have a microbiome as we humans have as well, and identifying plants that have a very good resistance. Yeah. Sometimes it's due to their genes, but sometimes it can be due to any kind of like microorganisms interacting with them and making them more resistant. So, but if it's a problem of like the plants being very much crowded and then they get more susceptible, that's of course a not a condition that one has in, in nature as such. Yes. Um, one Maybe one question. So when people, if people want to find more, find out more about uh, Syngenta flowers or finding more about where they could get the interspecific pelagonia. I say the only retailer I know that is really marketing them as interspecific is, the, is Plantation actually. Mm -hmm. But I say the other ones, Blomsterland, that they have them also. I mean, and it's it's uh, Shalex Pelagon. I mean, that is that is the the main one within this series, the red one. So I mean, we do together with Plantation and uh, the girls. They have the, so they have a program with in specific Pelagonians in different colors. Bigger pot than normally, and has bit more big, bigger plants on it. So this program they launched, was it three years ago, I think actually something like that. With actually we pushing them because when we approached Plantation, they said, yeah, but uh, we cannot sell them for the price that we would like to do because this has to be more expensive because the production price is more expensive. So I said, and then we don't believe we will be able to sell any volumes. But we insisted and we helped them with marketing the first years to launch this program with interspecific Pelagonians. And I mean, since then, it has been running and they are very happy with the outcome. And every year the volumes is increasing. But of course, I think, I don't remember the pricing, if they take 49 for these ones and a normal Pelagonians cost around 25, I think, in Sweden now. Mm. And it's almost the double of the price. And then as a consumer, you, you stand there, you say, okay, am I going to buy two or one? But shows and we have done some market research also together with Plantation and another retailer in Germany where they also launched. And it shows that the people that bought it the first year, they will buy it the second and the third year also because they had much more happiness with the plant in the garden or in on the balcony. Mm -hmm. I'm always in favor for putting down some more crowns or euros or whatever on two good quality plants. It's usually making making one happier in the long run as well when they are yeah. nice and they are growing nicely and they are, they are thriving. And what, what we should remember, I mean, the pelagonies that you have for the 25 crowns price in retail, 
I mean, it's the very compact varieties. They just to be possible to, to produce them very densely with many plants on the square meter. So it's, it's compact growing varieties. And I mean, when you put those ones in the garden or you put them on the balcony, they will have difficult to continue to grow again. But if you go to the more expensive ones where you don't, where not, you're not able to produce so many per square meter because they are strongly growing and they need the space. Of course, yes, a bit more expensive, but they will start growing when you plant them in the garden or you plant them on your balcony. I mean, then they will continue to grow. Mm. Do you have pelagoniums in your own garden or balcony or on your windowsill? That question I don't like. No, <laughs> 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 no, some, some yes, but you normally say the. The worst garden is the ones that are working with it on a daily basis. So, so mm. they, they, they normally say the children with the worst shoes are the, the ones from the shoemaker. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's also that's also yeah. reasoning. I think I've been uh, sharing always stories how my plants die. So <laughs> I'm soon not going to be a believable <laughs> yeah. plant biologist anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think that was a lot of very interesting insights into the industrial perspective of uh, pelagonium breeding and also the challenges yep. that you are facing today. Um, and something that we as a, as a consumer in the end that buy the plant often don't think about. It's like already no. thinking where this plant came from and what, what was involved in all that process until it arrived in our store. Yep, and I think actually always when I start to think, I see a pelagonium in the store, and then I think backwards in the chain to see what steps, what really needed to be done to be, to bring this pelagonium here in the store. And then I say it's uh, sometimes you get amazed with with, with the chain when you start from from breeding until the plant is standing in the store, mm. and then you say, and it only costs twenty five crowns. This is also, I think, something for the consumer to have in mind that it's it's the number of steps, but also the time that it took to to make this plant that in the end is standing on our on our windowsill, and the amount of people who worked with this as well until this is this is um, ready. Thank you very yeah. much. You are welcome. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And if you haven't listened to our other episodes about pelagoniums yet, where we discuss their history, their medical use, biotechnology, and how you can easily grow them yourself, then visit our webpage at www.flora-l.com forward slash blog, where you can find all Flora and Friends podcast episodes. To keep yourself up to date on new releases of episodes, I invite you to sign up for the Flora L newsletter while you are on our webpage. I hope you will be back next Wednesday for the next Flora and Friends episode where we dedicate our discussion and interview to the Pelagonium genus and its ecology. We're going to visit in our interview several places where pelagoniums are naturally grown. So a nice little tour through their original habitats and how they um, thrive there, but also what their challenges are there today. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.